0: Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. Later in the show, Denise Donlin, the former president of Sony Music Canada, among many other titles, including author and public speaker, joins Canadian soprano Misha Bruger Gossman and documentary filmmaker Paul Saltzman, whose latest film is about his experiences studying at the same Ashram, and this is pretty cool, as the Beatles in 1968, and me, we talk about what it means to be a legend. That's a little bit later in the show. First, though, we'll meet the man behind the legends. David Fischoff managed some of the biggest names in sports before turning his eye to music. While he was working with Ringo Starr, he hatched the idea for the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, a place for amateur musicians to play and learn from professionals like, oh, let me see, Roger Daltrey from The Who, Bill Wyman from The Rolling Stones, and many more. He's now the subject of a fun new documentary called Rock Camp that details the wild and wooly beginnings of the rock and roll fantasy camp and the role it plays in making people's lives better. It even has a theme song by Randy Bachman that sounds a little bit like this. Get
1: your drums and bass, guitars and amps, put your dreams on the line and take the chance.
0: Interview with David Fishoff by asking about the uplift that a movie like this can provide when everything in the news is so dark and daunting.
2: Although we're not running camps now, we can't do live music. Mm -hmm. I think this is a time to show the film, and um, I was excited to release it uh, this time period because it is giving everybody another, giving them a lift. Exactly like you said, it really is, and it shows the power of music. And and really, you can sit back now and enjoy and see the power of music and you know how it resonates on these people's lives now
0: let's go back to the beginning and you talk about this in the film and I've heard you talk about a little bit more but for my listeners that may not know uh the story how did your time working with Ringo Starr's all-star band lead you to the rock and roll fantasy camps
2: so you know as a producer um you know i was always putting together packages whether it was the happy together tour whether it was dirty dancing as a live tour and then eventually ringo and you know i was on tour with these people and they were all older than me you know and i and i never toured and they probably knew how naive i was you know on the road cuz i'd go home every weekend and and i was not, <laughs> i'm not a you know i'm not a road rat you know and 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 i was different than them my upbringing was different so after the fourth show of that of my of my ringo tour um I was having dinner with the president of Radio City because Ringo said, oh, I want to play Radio City. And, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, having dinner, all of a sudden Clarence Clements walks by and and he says, David, I'm out of here. And then Nils Lofgren walks by, he says, I'm out of here. And I said, oh no, and I had mortgaged my home to put Ringo's All-Star Band tour together. And uh, so I went to the, the you know, the security guard says, you better go down, there. there's a big fight going on. And I said, what's going on? And, and he says, Joe Walsh and, and, and Joe Walsh and Levon Helm are having a fight over songs. So I said, go find Ringo. You know, I can't yeah. control these guys. <laughs> and uh, he was nowhere to be found. So they said, you better go in there. And I walked into the dressing room and there was Levon Helm with a knife and blood all over his hands and Joe Walsh with a broken glass and cursing at each other. And, and I, all I could see was screaming at them, you bunch of babies, and seeing my home go down the river <laughs> that I had mortgaged. And uh, only to find out that they turned around and stuck their tongue out of me. And while they had fun doing that, um, you know, I, it was so interesting. And, and I think I love that in the film. To me, that's one of my favorite parts is because that's what gave me the impetus of Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. When I realized how much fun these rock stars have when they're together on the road. You know, people said, people said, this will never happen. You can't do this. They said, you know, you can do a live aid where they can bring all these bands together for one event. But the tour leaders of each band on tour and in an event um uh, and, a, and a tour will never work because um and uh, so but it worked and still does he Ringo still tours to this day 30 yeah. years
0: you're now. listening to my interview with david fishhoff founder of the rock and roll fantasy camp and you lost money on the first rock and roll fantasy camp why did you go back in i mean it took a, a few years but why did you go back in and do it again
2: I've lost money on many rock and roll fantasy camps. <laughs> you know, but my accountant. My accountant said to me one day when I moved to L.A. ten years ago. He says, "Why are you, why, why are you spending your kids' money?" Um, it's a passion. Uh, it, yeah. You know, it really is. It's it's been a passion to be able to give back to these people. And when you when you open your emails every day and you see people saying. David, I, you know, I can't tell you, but um, my best friend from camp and I recorded a song or um, my, I, I'm running my business better because I learned to listen. And you see my, or, 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 a wife writing me a note saying, you know, my husband doesn't have road rage anymore. He found his happiness at your rock camp. You realize that the power of, of music and the power of rock and roll. So that's really kept me doing this is every day. And, and, and also... If these rock stars, you know, by seeing them, how how much they love it, um, you know, it, you know, what? So people say, oh, David, they're only coming for you. They're not coming for me. Joe Perry came the first time because I asked him, but mm-hmm. the second, third, and fourth time, he's coming for Joe Perry because he's getting something out of it. Yeah. So, so many of these rock stars, Roger Dolce's done the camp eight times. Um, you know, Sam Hager's done it three times. You know, th- they come to the camp because they get something out of it also. And that, that is, it reminds them what it was like when they first started. Well, I think it's
0: interesting. You really get a sense in the film that uh, this isn't like uh, going on a cruise or renting an RV and taking some time off. This is actual work. When you go there, you are expected to perform, you are expected to um, uh, play music and, and work uh, a little harder than you might if you were just bashing away at the drums or at the guitar in your basement. Uh, so it is work, but I do think that there's a therapeutic benefit that comes out of it. Um, not only do you have one guy, the drummer who became a professional drummer after uh, his, sure. his uh, rock yeah, and roll fantasy cool. camp experience, uh, but as you said, I, I think people take away the idea that hard work gives you results and can give you results in, in many parts of your life, not just maybe on guitar or drums.
2: You know, I give all these campers who come credit um because you know it, it's not it's scary to think i'm gonna go jam with jeff beck i'm gonna jam <laughs> with paul stanley and you know why do i give him so much credit because i, I was invited once to go to um, michael jordan fantasy camp and he used to run a fantasy game and i said i'm not going to michael jordan fantasy <laughs> Camp, even if the guy was inviting me for free and i said i'm not gonna go play one-on-one with michael jordan look like an idiot or to or play three-on-three with three guys who think they're going to be able to beat them. And um, so, you know, people get scared to come. and But the once they come, they keep coming back and back and back because they realize that, wow, I can do this, I can then do that. And I think people are scared. And I think that's really why I love that Doug Blush made this film and Jeff Rowe. And that's mm-hmm. why I wanted the film made because I wanted people to see that you could be a beginner and you get a lot out of rock and roll fans camp, you can be an advanced player. And it's about these rock stars who know how to coach these people. And the best thing I learned at camp is that if you start to play with people that are better than you, it's gonna uplift your playing. And um, I, I think it's motivated so many of these musicians to, to take you know, what they've learned and you know, and go, go further and, and, and with their instrument.
0: And you talk about some of the, the mentors that you have. Uh, Slash showed up, said I'll play for an hour, then ended up staying and playing with every twelve different bands over twelve hours for an hour each. Uh, uh, Jeff, Beck, you talking? You know, rock and roll legends. Was it difficult to convince people to come the first
2: time to get 100%. to get the rockers? The heart. When I started twenty five years ago, there was no such thing as meet and greets. <laughs> In any of these concerts, there was no such thing as you are going to meet these rock stars. It was so hard, you know, rock stars always ran out the back door and they, and, and you never got to see them. You know, it's unlike the country people. I'll sleep with my people. They come <laughs> to my bus. I love, I, Keith Urban said, they come to my bus at five o'clock. I hug my fans, you know, it, it it's different with rockers. So very hard to convince them, you know, they were all scared of the people and um, and most of them weren't in health, good health. And, and, and every rocker, I know when I toured for all my 15 years with Ringo, I was in that van Uh, by the by the last song because we had to go catch a plane to the next city right so no one got to meet these rock stars and many of them turned me down but I think once Roger Daltrey did it and and he stayed for four days he just loved it he just said uh, you know this is great and and he said to me Dave one of these people performing I said they're going to perform at the bottom line he said I want to sing with them And once Roger did it, it it turned around and everybody else got to see the the heart and soul of Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Well,
0: I think that people really get a sense that uh, these people, I mean, certainly Roger Daltrey, Slash, Paul Stanley, they're larger than life characters. But what I got a sense of watching the movie is that really they're just people that love to play music. And even though they're playing with amateurs... In some cases, people who can barely play. In some cases, people who are, are quite good. They relate to them all just as musicians.
2: Well, that's, you know, Joe Perry said the greatest line at camp. And I've heard so many great things. I've, I've learned so much from these musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, he said to somebody, they were in a Q&A. He said, um, what do you do for a living? And the guy said, uh, I'm a doctor. And then on the weekends, I play in a band. You know, I'm a guitarist. And, and uh, Joe turned to me and said, no, you're a guitarist first. You do that medical crap to pay for your guitars. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is a musician is a musician and a vocalist is a vocalist and it's in their heart. And that's what they want to be. These are people who, you know, many of them started later in life, picking up a guitar or bass or drums. And some of them have been doing it since high school. And they just had to, you know, decide to make a different, uh, you know, uh, path in life, go get a job versus being a rock star. Mm
0: -hmm in the film we meet a number of the of the people that are coming to the fantasy camp is there a story for you that really stands out of 25 years of people coming and being mentored is there one person or or a couple of people that really stand out that are memorable
2: you know, every one of these musicians has a story. I'm telling you, they all have. They all come with a story. I mean, yeah. I've seen so many, uh, so many stories. But you know, there were there. There's a woman who had breast cancer who came to camp, and uh, she remember she came to the Meatloaf camp, and she came as my guest because uh, you know I would give this away to everybody. I really believe that I can change your life, yeah. um, and um, so she came and. Um, she left camp and um, I remember it was a meatloaf camp and she left camp, goes back to her doctor, and the doctor says, um, ma'am, I don't know what it is, but you you are cancer, you, you don't really have cancer anymore. And and you know, I don't know what happened to you, but she she wrote me back, she, she called me, and said David, I'm cancer free. And maybe she learned how to relax. And then I said to her, I said, When you left camp, were you weren't you depressed? She said, No. She says, I learned to change my life around. I said, I'm never gonna write another brief again in my life and um, I'm going to do do music. And she went on to write a book called Rocking the Pink. Then I said to her, so what's been since camp? She said, you know what I did, David? I've become the number one um, writer, uh, fiction writer on Amazon. And I changed my name because I want people to know about my cancer. And uh, she said, today I have 12 best-selling books worldwide. And I said, well, how does camp help you? She said, well, I learned to live my life authentically like these rock stars. And I wasn't living an authentic life. I was doing, I was miserable being a lawyer. And now, now I live an authentic life. And I think that to me, it was a great story. And then, you know, the stories of it, I'm on the street uh, three years ago and a guy accosts me and he says, David, you won't believe in. I just got back from Russia. My band opened for Aerosmith. And I said, <laughs> wow, what do you mean open for Aerosmith? Well, I came to your camp. I met Joe Perry and his manager, and I saw their work in Moscow. So I sent them, I sent her my CD and I said, my lead single is in Moscow. Could we possibly open be one of your opening bands? And she went to Joe and, and uh, she showed Joe the CD and Joe said, um, she said, you know you met him at Rock Camp. If I met him at Rock camp, let him be the opening act. <laughs> and they were the opening act of 50,000 people. And I don't even promote that ever. Yeah. But you know these stories, every one of them. Is a miracle. I. It really is. It really is a miracle.
0: You're listening to my interview with David Fishoff, subject of the great new documentary Rock Camp, now on VOD. So we talk about what the the rock stars to get away or take away from it, what the what the campers take away from it. What do you take away from it?
2: So for me, I I take away the the, the good feeling that, you know, Mm. for years I was making all these rock stars very wealthy and tours and, and, you know, booking them. And here I'm, I feel like I'm doing good stuff, you know, two things. Number one, I don't have to live on the road. And that to me is I'm able to, I got married again. I got Mm. two kids. I got teenagers. I got seven grandkids and I'm able to, to spend time with these teenagers. You know, when you, when you're on tour, with these big artists and when you're managing them and you, you saw I represent athletes, you know, you're really not there when you are there, you know, mm. cause you're thinking of your artists all day and they're going to get to a venue and they're going to scream or they're going to yell or they're going to be upset or cause you're not there with them on the road. So you're home and you, or, or the ball player who gets injured or things like you're living when you represent people, you are them. You are living, you're, you're mirroring their lives cause you care for them. And what the camp has done was able to get me off the road and find something that I could do in this industry. And then I'm doing good. And I really feel like I'm doing, you know, really good stuff for people. And and, um, I like it. I, I, you know, it's better to give than to receive. So um, it really is. For me, it's, it's, it's really, it resonates with me. And I've done a lot of things in my career. I love doing this camp.
0: You worked with the monkeys. And you have said, and I read that of all the people that you've worked with, and you've worked with everybody, the Monkees are the the band that people ask you about the most. Why do you think that is?
2: You know, I I think that the Monkees also are feel good. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that they just never got their recognition, both in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as a rock band. Um, you know, they delivered these amazing songs that were written by Neil Diamond, that were written by Carol, uh, Carol King King. and, 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 and Voice and Heart. And I just, you know, people, when they think the monkeys, they think happiness, they, it makes them smile. And I think that, um, you know, that so many people, they always want to talk to me about the monkeys and, and, um. They and they they feel that they really not never got their recognition as a rock band. Maybe it's the television show, but it is unbelievable that how many hit songs they sold more records than the Beatles for two years. And, um, and Jimi Hendrix were,
0: opened for them. I mean,
2: it's really- for them. There's so much history with them. There's so much history, and I and I love Davy Jones. And I, you know, the poor guy. I I, I, I say poor guy because he never realized how big he was Mm. and um, he felt comfortable when he was with his horses and and um, the business I think you know really hurt him over the years because um, you know all that screaming and yelling and he was such a huge star and um, you you know I think at a young age so uh, but he was he was a great person loved his fans and um, I just love their music I think it's fun.
0: I, I wrote a letter to him. I was working on a book years ago, and this was like quite a long time ago, 30 years, and maybe not 25 years ago. So I, I write him a letter to ask him about Jimi Hendrix opening for me, and I sent it to whatever the farm was. I can't remember the address, but it was like such and such a farm, rural route number two or something, you know, whatever it was. Right. And uh, a week later, I get a reply, and it's a handwritten Two or three page long letter from him with personal stories about the first time he met Jimi Hendrix. The the and and I had just asked for an interview, and uh, he replied with this beautiful document written on lined yellow uh, uh, loose leaf, and I still have it. It's still one of my prized things because I, I thought it was say, amazing. Yeah,
2: you know, a month before he passed away, he came to visit my my kids and sent my daughter a book. Uh, Oh, excuse <laughs> me. He said he sent my daughter a book, um, you know, that's a children's book that he wrote. I mean, just the thoughts that he had, he was really a special person. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was a special person, and that, that's great to hear. And again, he was dedicated to his fans while the other guys in the band, um, they didn't all get along because you know they weren't childhood friends, and I gotta believe there was some jealousies too. We like to rock!
0: Now, you said earlier that you've made a lot of rock stars rich. The business has changed so much now. Streaming has stripped away a lot of the way that uh, musicians make money. There's all sorts of, of different uh, uh, procedures now just to, to, to try and get your work out there, your music out there. What advice would you give to someone now who said, I'm good enough. I've got great songs. I'm going to
2: get out and play. So, first of all, I got to correct myself. I made people richer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they they had enough money. Trust me, the ones I worked with had enough money. It just made them wealthier. Um, You know, today there's bigger opportunities, more opportunities. In the olden days, um, these record labels would stay with these bands. um, After the first record, the second record, they would stay and look for a career. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many bands had multiple record deals. Today, these labels, you know, if you don't sell the first day, they, they, they get rid of you. Um, so the business has totally changed. And also today, the ability for people to, make, to record their own songs, to distribute their own music. It's allowed them to go on tour and sell their own merchandise. And they can go from city to city to city in motorhomes. The business is so much more open to write songs and to submit them to movies and television. It's so much more to commercials. There is so many apps and so many ways that you can sell your music today. While it's not a great area to, you know, you know, multi-million dollars to sell songs the way they used to be, it's giving you the ability to pick up fans and then you can tour. The touring business has gotten greater than ever. And there's clubs that are operating seven nights a week so you can sell your merchandise, mm-hmm. you can get the, the piece of the door, you can get guarantees. There's more of an opportunity to tour now and to be a musician than ever before.
0: Well, once and, we get past the pandemic.
2: pandemic. I got a lot, yeah, past, and I gotta okay. tell you, the other thing too that's really opened up has been these tribute bands. Um, I cannot tell you how these, tri- I've had many campers that come to camp and they're in tribute bands today. And uh, those tribute bands are very successful. And post-pandemic, yeah, it will come back. It's listen, it's going to come back so big um, because everybody has been holding in their feelings of writing songs. I cannot wait to see the music that's going to come out post the pandemic because you know now you know, no one's rushing their albums. I got time. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to I'm going to re-record that song, get the lyrics perfect, so that I, I, I think we're going to see a huge success in our business.
0: Well, and I think audiences are ready. I think it is hardwired into our DNA to enjoy entertainment, whether it's a movie or a stage play or a concert, collectively. We want to sit together and we want to hear people singing along and clapping and laughing and crying and doing whatever it is that they do in response to that. It's a collective experience. People are missing it right now. And as soon as we don't have to wear a mask or whatever it is that we're doing right now uh, i think that will come back stronger than ever
2: and i hope that, that people see the movie and that, and that mm-hmm. uh, will give them the appetite to to how how important live music is and that you know the, some great lines in the film about sammy hager saying you know we make mistakes you know and people <sighs> should realize that and i thought that was really cool what he said and what and, and 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 rob halford and they really shared honesty and i think in the film you also see these artists like you've never seen before. Uh, how humble they are.
0: That was the wonderful David Fishoff, subject of the new documentary called Rock Camp, which you can find on VOD right now. Check it out. It's really worth a look. Now I have the beginning of a panel for you. Denise Donlin. Misha Bruger gossman and Paul Saltzman. Paul Saltzman's latest film is about his experiences studying at the same ashram as the Beatles in 1968. So we thought that putting Denise, Misha and Paul together was the perfect panel to talk about what makes a legend. Denise, how do you define the word legend?
3: Oh, I think it has to be um, iconic, enduring. It has to have made significant impact, whether it be cultural, social, political. I think they need to be unique in a significant way. And I think what makes a legend is um, unerring uh, devotion and dedication to craft, sometimes in the face of adversity or you know, the slings and arrows that you face when you're a legend.
0: Now, Misha, a quick Google search of your name uh, comes up with the word legend all of the time. How does it feel to be described as a legend?
1: Uh, Inaccurate, (laughs) only because I just feel like I'm a, you know, soldier in these mean streets, kind of just slogging away. Denise, that was an incredible description of legend. (laughs) I would love to be any and all of those things. (laughs) But oh, I, honey, I, you are
3: well on your way. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: think I think probably the characteristic of a legend usually comes down to not knowing you are one because you're mm-hmm. too busy just like slaying out what your calling is and trying to heal people and serve people and you know I I I love my job. It just so happens that there's maybe more people looking at me doing my job because my workday ends in applause, which is incredibly unnatural, but. Really, legends are people like my mother who raised me to, you know, kind of feel this way about what I do.
0: Has the word legend become overused in the media? Uh, Paul, I'll start with you.
4: It's a weird word. There's, there are people to me who are angels on the planet. You know, this mm-hmm. is Earth school. We're in Earth school. And some people are in grade three and some people are in high school and some people are in university in Earth school. And many legends are in grade three. Many legends are not angels on the planet. So I think it's got more to do with how you resonate with others, whether, you're, whether you are a healthy person for yourself and others, whether you're an unhealthy person for yourself and others. So that's kind of where I come in. Denise, how do you feel? Is this word overused?
3: I, I, it's not... Oh, I don't overuse it. In fact, I'm very careful about that word, uh, about the G word, too, genius, when you're mm-hmm. talking about musical genius. But I do think that there are legends. There are many living legends still, and I can think of, you know, from, from Nelson Mandela to, you know, Muhammad Ali to uh, Billie Holiday to... You know, there there are legends who have had a huge impact in how we um, how we love uh, art or how we... Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I'm wearing my dissent uh, <laughs> necklace today because, you know, the Supreme Court justice for 27 years and everything that she did for social justice, she is a legend in my book. And I think many of the, um, you know, the rulings that she was part of uh as long as there's a democracy and we're in an interesting time at the moment um they will endure so she's definitely a legend in my book
0: now paul you made a documentary about the beatles from a very personal experience did you even have a sense of their status in music history when you first met them
4: yeah sure i did i was a fan Uh, their music changed my life Mm -hmm. Starting with the early 60s and dance music, we danced to their music at parties. Then, when they wrote uh, Revolver and I heard the song Tomorrow Never Knows, it changed my life. I never knew it was an inner journey. Um, and then, you know, when I met them in India, they had already done Sgt. Pepper. They were probably, they say, the four, four most famous people on the planet. So I knew that in my mind. There's
0: more on the legendary panel after the break. But before we go, I just wanted to tell you a quick little story about meeting a legend and how fleeting that term can be. Once at a music industry schmooze fest, Gordon Lightfoot was standing about four feet away from me speaking with some friends. As his voice kind of hung in the air, I saw two giggling young women with cameras in hand approaching the corner of the room that Gordon Lightfoot and I shared. One veered to the left to speak with Lightfoot, the other turned to the right, coming directly at me. I realized that teenager A was asking Gordon Lightfoot to snap a picture of teenager B and me. Now, I never saw the photo. I'd like to think that Lightfoot imbued his trademark poetry to the picture, finding some understated inner beauty that everyone else would be too blind to see. But I doubt it. I'm guessing it was just another blurry party pic with me looking slightly embarrassed to have inadvertently put one of Canada's greatest songwriters in a position of playing paparazzi. Gordon Lightfoot, of course, is a legend and no longer needs to chase the spotlight. He gets to do the work he loves, I'm sure, and still gets asked to pose for pictures all the time. But when I think back to my Lightfoot story, I wonder if he was just being gracious or if he enjoyed not being the subject of a photo for once. Denise, you've worked with so many people who legitimately earned the title of legend. Did they behave differently? (laughs) And more importantly, did you treat them
3: differently? (laughs) Well, you know what? I think, you know, if you're talking about people like, you know, Leonard Cohen or Joni Mitchell or, uh, you know, Lightfoot even, uh, um, they... I think that true artists, the icons, the legends, I think they are different, especially if you're talking about, you know, the musical artistic world, because it's a very weird existence for artists. Misha will tell you this, you know, you have to be true to your craft in creative isolation. And then in order to succeed, you have to go out there in the world, in the business, right, and sell it. So you have to be sort of a, an introvert and an extrovert at the same time and you have to be able to bear a life of judgment. You know, with every work that you put out, you're asking for judgment. Here it is, what do you think? Do you like it? Do you like me? I mean, it's no wonder so many of them, you know, end up in the 27 Club. It's a tough thing to endure. Many of the the great legends, that I would call legends you know weren't even um, popular in their time going back to Van Gogh or, or Bach even that I mean imagine creating things that would endure for hundreds of years and never actually get the applause for it while you're living hmm.
0: now Misha when a piece of music is labeled legendary is it harder to put your own spin on it
1: well As a classical singer, you're constantly um, recreating works that singers who may be better than you have sung before you. So you're constantly in the realm of comparison. Although from my perspective, I constantly think that this is the piece that the composer wrote for me just yesterday, even if it's like 250 years old. So I think (laughs) the concept of singing legendary works Um, In the present, you know, I did the debut of the Beethoven Ninth Symphony in Accra, Ghana. I never thought I'd be singing Beethoven for the first time for anyone, um, let alone, you know, uh, just a populace of people who uh, for whom this is not the music tradition. So in a way, I become legendary in that atmosphere only because I represent the first experience for someone. but. Beethoven is the true legend, you know, Wagner and and, and Berlioz and all of these incredible, you know, let's face it, white men who were published, you know, because that's the separation, because we have to also decide if our concept of how we define what is legendary comes down to who gets published and recorded and who has access to that kind of um, legend-making Uh, technology, because let's face it, the people, like Paul was saying, the people who we maybe herald in the culture might not be people worthy of legendary status. They're just who we see the most. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: And Paul, you went to a yoga retreat to heal. You hung out with the Beatles and John Lennon gave you some advice. What was it?
4: Um, So I I arrived at the ashram with a broken heart, and it wasn't yoga, by the way, it was meditation. Mm. But I arrived at the ashram with a broken heart and somebody said why don't you try meditation for the heartbreak and I was desperate and um, after waiting outside the gate for eight days because they wouldn't let me in and I I didn't, you know, it was bad news the Beatles were there. It was not good news, that's why I couldn't get in. But. Um, once I got in and then I hung out with them uh, John was just very beautiful with me at one point we were just sitting alone and because no one was allowed in in the way of visitors or press he just said to me in a very kind way he said so what are you doing here and I said well meditation heartbreak the miracle of it uh, the first 30-minute meditation took the agony of the heartbreak away it was a complete miracle a miracle and he said, so what are you doing here? So I said that, and he, he had this momentary pause and he looked off in the distance and he said to me, well, yes, Paul, love can be very hard on us sometimes, can't it? And I said, mm-hmm. And he looked away again and then he looked back after a moment and he said, but you know, the really great thing about love, Paul, is you always get another chance. And in that moment, he couldn't have been more kind. That was the perfect thing to say to somebody who's still getting over. The shock of a heartbreak.
0: You're listening to the panel. That's Denise Donlin, Misha Bruger Gossman, and Paul Saltzman. Uh, Paul,
4: what is it that you remember
0: the most uh, about meeting the Beatles?
4: Um, the playfulness, the joy, and uh, the joy when they were creating music. That would, that's what I remember the most. Mm-hmm. What's the Oobla Dee Oobla Da story? <laughs> that, was, that was a very sweet moment. Um, I I had a camera and I had lots of film and they didn't mind me taking pictures at all because they kind of took me into their group. But I never thought of it. Uh, and, And literally within 30 seconds of sitting down with them, I actually and literally forgot about Beatles. I really did. To the point that I didn't get any pictures taken with them and we could have had, that would have been easy. I didn't think of an autograph. It wasn't that I thought, oh, I'd like my picture with them. No, I better not. I literally didn't have the thought because the, the famous people went away and there were these human beings. And while that sounds, you know, whatever it sounds like, cliched or odd, it's the literal truth, it was the blessing of it all. Because, you know, mm-hmm. they, they knew I didn't want anything from them. I came to learn meditation to heal a heartbreak. I didn't come to meet them. Um, and so, so their, their playfulness, the old bloody, I was, I was walking back to my tent there weren't any extra beds in the ashram. So I was in the ashram by day and eating meals there, but I slept in my tent outside the gate. And I was walking back to my tent to just do a meditation, and there was there was Paul and John sitting on the steps of their bungalow with Ringo. And they were playing, and they were playing things I could recognize, and they were playing things I couldn't recognize. And uh, so I went and got my camera. It was one of only two times I took out my camera in a whole week. And I came back and I took some pictures and I sat down beside Ringo and then Paul and John started singing Obladi Oblada Bra La How the Life Goes On and I looked down and under Paul's toe of his sandal is a little torn piece of yellow paper and written on it is Obladi Oblada Bra La, How the Life Goes On and he's looking down at it playing so it must have been brand new because he didn't remember the words yet he was looking reading them. And they were playing it over and over and over again, and you know, with joy, and they were bending it and stretching it out and doing it fast and doing it slow. And I took a picture of Paul just as they were doing that, which is called Oblody, and then they paused just to take a breather, and he looked up at me and he said, that's all there is so far. We don't have any of the words yet. <laughs> so that was just, but what, I, but what I noticed in that moment was the joy, mm. the absolute joy. And in that moment, I realized, ah, oh, So joy is at the heart of creativity and creativity is at the heart of joy. Works both ways.
3: Hmm. Hmm. And food. You got to throw food in there. (laughs) (laughs) It's very wise, very wise to hear you say that, Paul.
0: I love talking to the panel about what makes a legend. And I loved hearing the stories about the Beatles in India. That was Denise Donlin, Misha Bruger gossman and Paul Saltzman. If you want to find out more about Paul Saltzman's film, Meeting the Beatles in India, go to thebeatlesinindia.com/the-movie. All the details are there. You can find it there very easily. Uh, my thanks to David Fishoff. Check out Rock Camp. It's a really fun documentary about the central role that music plays in our lives and how it can make us feel better. When things aren't going so great. I think a lot of people will get some uplift from that movie right now and we could sure use it. My biggest thanks goes to you as always for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe and we'll talk again soon.